Valerie Steele is Director and Chief Curator of the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology, where she has personally organized more than 25 exhibitions, including The Corset, Fashioning the Body, Gothic, Dark Glamour, A Queer History of Fashion, and Paris, Capital of Fashion. She is Founder and Editor-in-Chief of Fashion Theory, the Journal of Dress, Body, and Culture, the first peer-reviewed scholarly article in fashion studies. Described in the Washington Post as one of fashion's brainiest women, Steele combines serious scholarship and a Yale PhD with a rare ability to communicate with general audiences. She is author or co-author of more than two dozen books, including Paris Fashion, A Cultural History, Women of Fashion, Fetish, Fashion, Sex, and Power, and Fashion Designers A to Z, the collection of the museum at FIT. As an author, curator, editor, and public intellectual, Valerie Steele has been instrumental in creating the modern field of fashion studies and has appeared on many television programs, including The Oprah Winfrey Show and Undressed, The Story of Fashion. Mia conducted this interview with Valerie before the opening of her exhibition at FIT, Paris, the Capital of Fashion, which opened September 6, 2019, and is open to the public until January 4, 2020. Valerie Steele, uh, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So we're sitting here in the, the Museum of the uh, Fashion Institute of Technology, which uh, is celebrating its 50th year. Tell us first, what drew you to fashion on, on a personal level and then to the study as a, a curator and the director of this museum? Well, I mean, like many of us, I was always personally interested in fashion as a means of communication uh, and masquerade, but I it was in graduate school when uh, a classmate of mine did a report on two scholarly articles about the Victorian corset that I suddenly had an epiphany and I realized that fashion was a part of culture and I could study fashion history. I'd gone to get my PhD at Yale in modern European cultural and intellectual history and so realizing that fashion was part of culture was just like having a light bulb go on and from that minute on all of my coursework and my doctoral dissertation were about the history of fashion. Yes, and of course you've you've done um, exhibitions and you've written a you know a book on on the corset, and it is interesting. Was it at that time when you were devoting yourself to it? Was it because there's always this issue about fashion being taken seriously? Is fashion and art this question? Well, it, it never particularly interested me whether fashion is an art. Mm -hmm. Clearly, fashion is an important part of culture that says mm -hmm. a lot about society and about individual psychology. So I personally don't care whether you consider it art. There's so many definitions of what art with a capital A is. Yeah. Um, the fact that fashion has been looked down on uh, as being a very kind of bourgeois consumerist phenomenon, not worthy of study, didn't bother me because I was just convinced that studying that fashion was a perfectly valid, important topic to study. But um, 
it certainly hindered my career because no history department was going to hire someone whose specialty was the history of fashion. It was still very much regarded as a completely frivolous topic. Um, I've told this story before, but once in graduate school, a very famous intellectual historian asked me what I was working on, and I said, fashion. And he said, oh, that's so interesting, German or Italian? And I thought, what is he talking about? There's no German fashion. And then suddenly the penny dropped, and I said, no, no, fashion like Paris, not, <clears throat> not fascism. And he just said, oh, and he turned and walked away. There was nothing to say to someone working on such an idiotic topic. But it, it has changed. Oh, that's changed, absolutely. People are much more willing to um, agree that fashion is a significant topic, significant in terms of the economics of it, in terms of social impact, sort of cultural significance. Some people regard it as an art, etc. Mm -hmm. And the staging of it, and then the staging of in course. the museum setting, the photography, and all of that. And of course, we draw on it for um, theater, film, television. Of and course. Immensely. Uh, and, and for painting, so I think it's 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 unfortunate that people have that diminishing view, or maybe to make themselves feel important. Well, I think it comes very much, it's reinforced by the whole history of Puritanism in the United States, that it's something which is vain and deceitful, yeah. that is preventing you from seeing your true inner self. Yes. I mean, of course, there's this thing, we all want to look better. We are in search of beauty. I mean, as and animals as well, we're drawn to that. So it's, it's strange because the other art forms maybe are seen as more permanent or lasting. But maybe as we have more important institutions and museums as yours, then it helps us to value the, the social contribution and barometer. Uh, so as you chose, you, you've, you've written immensely. You've written so many books on fashion and you've curated so many exhibitions and as you started on that path, just speak about some of your the current exhibitions now for this 50th year and then the ones as you began your life as a curator. Well, uh, earlier this year we did uh, Exhibitionism, 50 years of the museum at FIT, which looked back at 33 of the most influential exhibitions that have been put on here for over the past half a century. And now my next big show will open on September 6th, which is Paris, Capital of Fashion, about Paris fashion over the past 300 plus years, and how the idea of Paris as being the international capital of fashion was constructed. And it was obviously done in a global context, and in contrast to other important fashion capitals, such as London, later New York, Milan, etc., so um, that's something that I'm quite interested in. I've been studying Paris fashion for many years. My mm -hmm. second book, which I recently revised again, was about a cultural history of Paris fashion. So this one, uh, I think, is important because it's looking at Paris fashion from a completely different way, not just focusing on a kind of genealogy of genius, a list of the great designers. There was Worth, who gave birth to Poiret, who gave birth to Chanel, who gave birth to Dior, um, but rather looking at how this idea of Paris was constructed and what, how it's related to ideas of Paris as the capital of art, the, the capital of modernity, the capital of the 19th century, and how Paris has become so associated with the Parisienne and therefore with the idea of femininity in fashion or, and luxury in fashion. Yes, well, I, I live in Paris, so I appreciate that, but I always find also New York very stylish and 
uh, in a way, the approach of the average person, I think, is more devoted, to, in my opinion, into, into uh, to making an effort. That, that's just my point of view, but I don't know what you feel. Well, i am really been looking at it less in terms of the individual than in terms of um, ideas about the city and the construction of the industry. I mean, the industry mm -hmm. in Paris being oh, based course, on the idea of the couture, a luxury distinction, and the American fashion industry being much more based on mass production and historically on imitation of French fashion. So that if you were rich enough, you could go to Paris and go to the couture. Otherwise, you could buy licensed or unlicensed copies of French fashion. And then later on, things which were just more generally derived from French fashion. And then New York began to present other kinds of sportswear that were presented as an alternative to formal Paris fashion, so sportswear that was supposed to be more liberating vis-a-vis uh, -vis the quote-unquote dictatorship of Paris fashion. So the idea of Paris then works across cultures. People made a lot of money out of copying Paris, but also made money and distinguished themselves by rebelling against the idea of Paris. And could you speak to like the distinction to between um between fashion and style? Well, that's, those are both very ideologically loaded terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, fashion really just means styles of clothing that change regularly, or styles in jet fashion is, implies the way of making something. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about fashions in clothing. You also have fashions in music, in food, in names, for example. Right now in France, it's becoming more and more fashionable to give people names which, like Kevin, which are not traditional French names. Mm -hmm. And historically, the, the French government would regulate what names you could use. So fashion has a lot to do with ideas of taste, which changes. Um, but style is essentially synonymous with Paris. It also means the way things, sorry, synonymous with fashion, it also means the way things are made. You know, sort of Louis Seize style is different than Empire style. That's in a way just the same as fashions. Mm. It's interesting, I'm just thinking now because the interview I did before with was a historian from the Louvre, and I'm just thinking how many, I mean, even though we have great art schools like the Ecole Nationale Supérieure des Beaux-Arts, uh, how many of those traditional skills have been lost. We're talking, he's expert mm. in Da Vinci, and I'm thinking about how fashion has held on, has couture has become, you know, as we lose some of those traditional art skills where they don't even, don't even know how to, how, uncertain how to restore certain paintings because that's lost. But actually yes. the same skills yes. have been lost in fashion. Yes. There are only a handful of people uh, who can still do the kind of embroidery or feather work or anything that was done in the past. Yes. I mean, in the Japanese idea of calling these craftspeople living national treasures, the French government and big companies like Chanel have been trying to preserve them, but there's no question that there's a diminishing number of people who have these skills. And so then at, um, not the museum side, but of the Fashion Institute of Technology, how, what is the educational programming like and how do you expose students to diff the, the craft side, the business side, the design side? Well, the museum is a division of the college, yes. but I don't have anything to do with teaching the students. So oh, that yes. here, we, we provide exhibitions and hundreds of classes which show them about the history of fashion. And we'll look at things like 
this is a couture dress, this is a ready-to-wear dress, they're different in these particular ways. We have classes that are taught here at the museum where they'll look at ornamentation, but we're not teaching them you know, how to do embroidery, they just are seeing the kinds of surface ornamentation that have been used historically in fashion. I'm Maggie Innes. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan, where I study anthropology and art and design. I'm a street style photographer for Shea Magazine and an associate podcast producer for The Creative Process. I was drawn to this distinction made by Valerie as to the ideological distinction between fashion and style, as it is something I feel as if I grapple with every day, whether it be because I am approaching people in public to photograph or because I have just gotten out of bed myself and I need to find a way to dress for the day. I'm always in search of this line between what is fashion and what is style. What I often find and believe is that style is something that is deeply woven into the being of an individual and that fashion, rather, is much more about adhering to a societal standard. As someone who studies cultural anthropology and is very interested in fashion in all of its forms, I quickly became stuck on Valerie's words on the nature of fashion, specifically in regards to fashion as being this sort of ever-transforming norm. Valerie talks about how fashion has a lot to do with ideas of taste, and how taste is this thing that is constantly changing and evolving. Fashion is something that we can easily conceptualize in this way as constantly changing in substance and in form. I feel that in relation to the evolving nature of fashion, we can apply this line of thinking to several other norms and social constructs that exist in our world. When we think about various types of social constructs or societal norms, it's often the perception that these things are somehow concrete and immovable, that they are in many ways incapable of transformation. We especially think this in terms of the way we understand or conceptualize social structures and identities and things like race, gender, sexuality even, Looking at the evolution of fashion in relation to these other social concepts becomes a deeply useful analogy, I think, with which to look at our world. It becomes easier then to examine and to visualize the ways in which beliefs and structures that exist today are not as rigid or inherent as we'd like to think. They are much more malleable and elastic, and like fashion, our social world exists in a constant state of flux. We can almost, like those who really like love our clothing and, you know, uh, we can imagine different lives for ourselves or embody different characters. Uh, yes, let's speak about some different designers, those that drew you or that you just find fascinating. Well, at some point I would like to do an exhibition about the psychology or fashion and psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. um, some designers, like McQueen, who clearly were really like artists in the way they thought about fashion, um, are very interesting 
to look at in terms of what kind of fears and desires were driving their designs. But most designers, there's simply not enough information to make even an attempt to sort of psychoanalyze what the designer's mm -hmm. doing. But still, there are interesting ideas about what people think they're doing when they're um, exhibiting themselves in fashion, you know, to what kind of exhibitionism is being displayed in different styles of dress. There was a very interesting psychoanalytic article about the masquerade of femininity that successful women, in a sense, masqueraded as being more feminine versions of themselves to try and um, ameliorate male hostility towards their success. Mm -hmm. And so there, one could imagine doing an interesting analysis of sort of very, some designers seem to be creating something which is very much a masquerade of femininity, completely fantastical, almost drag queen-like version of femininity, as opposed mm -hmm. to other designers who do a more dandy-like, androgynous image. So I'm working at the moment on trying to figure out how I could do a show on that thinking ahead, how could I work on something like that? Oh, that's really fascinating. And then I think of other periods in contrast to that. I think of the 80s with the big shoulder pads or where it was an assertion, yes? Yes, uh, it would seem to be so. Yeah. Uh, and then, But when you look more closely at it too, you find in America it was seen as being very assertive and very kind of successful woman and work and the big yes. football or shoulders. But when it was originated with people like Claude Montana, mm -hmm. it was very much a kind of phallic woman style. Yes. So you imagine Claude Montana's women marching down the runway with very broad shoulders and very narrow hips, but they're like, like kind of, um, all I can say is they look like a, almost a caricature of a phallic woman. A very, so you can, very yes. like the drag queen yes. thing. Yes. yes, so it comes back to that again. Uh, and, how, and of course, let's talk about the sexuality in fashion or the diminished sexuality as we know as the situation requires. As we well, that, that of course, there's been a lot written about sexuality in fashion over mm -hmm. the decades, much of it very wrong-headed. You know, mm -hmm. the, the classic labor shifting erogenous zone that women's fashion was all about exposing different parts of the female body mm -hmm. in, in labor's belief in response to male... Um, sense of being attracted to certain parts of the body. But, I mean, heterosexual men never cease to be attracted to secondary sexual characteristics. So the fact that fashion is highlighting one or another part of the body has much more to do with what's going on in the fashion world than what's going on uh, in the wider kind of mm, sexual sphere. For example, when you have dresses in the 1930s that have plunging back lines and back. Yes. Now that has much more to do with the fact that uh, in Hollywood they started to pass rules that you couldn't have plunging necklines in front. Uh -huh. So to show more skin you started uh -huh. to show it. Plus of course you had plunging back lines for bathing suits and people were trying to be um, getting more tan. So it wasn't suddenly that men became fetishistic about women's upper backs. There were other reasons in clothing design why that suddenly came to the fore. Men were not tired of breasts, nor were they tired of legs. It was just that the fashion was focusing on another part of the body. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the theories about sexuality and fashion have been primitive, to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, also the fact that people like Labour being 
had no interest in the obvious sexualization of various kinds of men's fashion, such as cob pieces and the Renaissance. The idea that somehow women's sexuality was all throughout the body, whereas men's was solely based on the penis. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, of course you could say, well, men's broad shoulders, men's buttocks, men's thighs, all of these have, have been sexualized by fashion. Yes, and I just, I had heard that the collarbone is being fetishized, or things I had not thought, but uh, of course you've written about other uh, evidently fetishized elements of fashion, like shoes and boots, yes, and these indeed. are forthcoming Which exhibitions. Are, yes. Well, we might include something like yeah. that in our shoe exhibition. Yes. We've, well, we've done two other shoe exhibitions, but we're working on another one for 2021, but that's a bit away. Oh, okay. But I do like to talk about shoes because that's something that even those that aren't so fascinated in fashion... Well, yes. shoes are extraordinary. I've, I've done two books and two shows on shoes, and it is really fascinating how people are obsessed with shoes. And so many women have really big shoe collections, hundreds of pairs of shoes if not Imelda Marcos-like collections, still very large. Whenever I point out that we have more than 4,000 pairs of shoes at the museum at FIT, people want to come in and see the, see the collection. Um, obviously, women are not gravitating towards shoes for the same reason as male shoe fetishists mm -hmm. who want to lick or kiss or masturbate into shoes or you know or uh, so I mean they're women that's not what it's about at all and yet there's no question that women are very interested in shoes in part because um, shoes allow you so much play and you can wearing the same black dress by changing a pair of shoes you can change the whole look of the ensemble and you get very strong reactions from people. I remember once in a shoe store, I kicked off a pair of loafers and tried on a pair of high heels, and some pervert who was lurking around in the shoe department immediately rushed up and said, now you're sexy. As though by changing <laughs> into a pair of high heels, I was transformed into now a sexy person. So there, there's no question that women are attracted to shoes for their own reasons, and men also are very much attracted to shoes. Now Freud had thought that shoe fetishism prevented men from becoming homosexual, but that's obviously false since homosexual men are have shoe fetishes too, just for different kinds of shoes. May I ask if you have a fetish fashion? I mean, I'm not in such a such a deep <laughs> obsession, but obsession perhaps is a better word. Well, yeah. when I went to a fetish club once in yes, London, and you've done exhibitions, uh, and um, Someone there said, well, you know, what's your fetish? What are you into? And I said, oh, I'm just here to watch. And he laughed and said, oh, you're, an, you're a foyer. <laughs> so that was very funny. It was really the perfect response. Yeah, no, that is great. Well, in a way, you know, historian, curator, you are, you are there to watch, but yes, synthesize. It, right, yes. but there's no, unquestionably that kind of curiosity does have a voyeuristic component to it. Knowledge so he was fetish. quite right, yes. indeed. Yeah, and it's endless because there's always, yes. I mean, there was, Mondrian said something yeah. to the effect of to see, to know is happiness. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, that's so true. Yeah. But the root of knowing is, seems to go back to seeing. I think it goes back to play in childhood as well because this thing where we have this curiosity, it brings us back to our sense of... Of course. Yeah. And the idea that when you dress up as a child, it's very much about becoming this other person. Yeah. I mean... 
I have very clear memories of dressing up as a child and wanting to be an actress, you know, dressing up in my mother's mm. evening gown and posing yeah. with a fan or wearing artist smocks in nursery school. And that was sort of, you put that on and then you could paint, then you would become someone else. So I think that's very much also part of individual psychology of fashion. What's interesting to me is where individual psychology meets kind of cultural and social ideas. And then you start to see trends in fashion. Oh, yes, trends. I'd love to speak. Yeah, what, 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 how do you trace them? I mean, well, I mean, you, m not every trend is meaningful. Yes. But certain trends do seem to fit in with the zeitgeist when, for example, in the 60s when the, because of the birth control pill and the, the youth quake because of the, the new sort of bulge in young people meant that you could have, for the first time, protected sex mm -hmm. and you could show off more of your body and you had a whole group, a cohort of young people who had a lot of money and freedom and mm -hmm. sexual freedom and that tr totally influenced fashion. So then you got the whole 60s youth quake. Mm -hmm. um, which was spearheaded in the United States and in Great Britain, where you had much more of a youth culture with rock and roll, mm -hmm. which you didn't really have so much in France. You didn't have mm -hmm. quite as much of a youth bulge as well as a yes. youth culture. So French designers had to come up with a kind of metaphor for youth uh, in terms of space age and things like that. So then you get Courage's Moon Girls and Pierre Cardin, mm -hmm. in a way, trying to create a a high fashion metaphor for an idea of youth and newness. All right, and speaking of newness now, because well, I don't know why we, we always feel, but I do feel like we're in a crucial period as we think about the future, and how does that go down or filter up mm. uh, into fashion? Well, yeah. it's no longer a question of things filtering down from a social elite or from yeah. an elite of designers. Um, it's more, I think, a question of like a, a pebble thrown in a pond of circles coming outward, that the, the old empire of fashion where things came down has disintegrated into a variety of sort of style tribes which coexist and which are mostly mutually incomprehensible, a kind of balkanization of fashion. So if you are into a kind of retro girly look, whether it's based on something which is um, thrift store finds mm -hmm. or Dolce & Gabbana or whatever. Mm -hmm. those That's a different look than if it's a kind of, you know, sort of uniform, invisible ninja kind of uniform, which is sort of like all in black, the kind of fashion widow thing. Mm -hmm. And there, I think this is something that we thought, think of youth cultures and style tribes as being a phenomenon of young people, but in fact they go right through fashion. Um, from all those yummy mommies in their yoga pants in Brooklyn mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of Wall Streeters to everybody has these little sort of style tribes that they belong to. And designers have to try and find, um, find a group of people who want to look like what they want to create in a way.
Yeah, it's, it's strange the looking for audiences, designing for audiences, and then bringing what you want to into it to make it feel fresh for yes, you. Yes, exactly, too. exactly. Yeah, you can't keep on doing the same thing. That's sometimes right. Sometimes people do want the same thing. That, that's <laughs> yeah. very much so they want the same thing. And, and you asked about the difference between fashion and style. We tend to think of it as in terms of personal style versus mm -hmm. social fashion. Mm -hmm. In fact, our personal styles are heavily influenced by social and cultural fashions and vice versa. Fashion designers are t attempting to cater to the various personal styles of different you know, personalities and types of people around. Um, but that tension at certain points in time people are more inclined or significant groups of people are more inclined to dress in a certain way. And now that things have shattered into lots of different style tribes, it's harder to identify which are the more important ones. We're inclined to think that it's individuals who cause things, like great designers like Coco Chanel, or great personalities like Madonna, or, you know, the look of um, Faye Dunaway and Bonnie and Clyde as launching a style. Um, sometimes people will also think of it being big social and cultural changes like the women's movement or the civil rights movement or World War I is causing changes. In fact, although individuals and big socioeconomic processes have an impact, most fashions are more influenced by either the craft world of designers and looking at what other designers are doing or the world of consumers and what they're doing. What designers look at what other designers are doing, just like painters look at what other painters are doing. And that's what's predominantly they're reacting against and when they make something new. And with consumers, it becomes a question of, well, what kind of music are they listening to? That has styles connected mm -hmm. with it. Are they into goth music, goth style, whatever? Or um, are they skateboarding? So as we look into the future, you really have to look into both more deeply what are designers reacting to and which designers are influencing them and what are younger people, since they tend to be more into fashion, what are they involved with, what's important to them. So if we're seeing a big movement on young people about save the planet, sustainability, that might be something that you want to keep an eye on as being part of the future of fashion. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Valerie Steele, for um, your incredible insights into the world and the culture of fashion and how uh, it enriches our lives. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and congratulations to the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology for its 50th anniversary. Uh, and uh, we look forward to celebrating in the traveling exhibition. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, dear. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Maggie Innes. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website www.creativeprocess.info want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews 
email us at team at creativeprocess.info. 